This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. Remember to like and share and give us all the stars on this episode. We're starting off our systematic theology dose. The doctrine of man. Did you say the histomatic? Systematic. Oh. (laughs) Sistheo, too. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Yeah, we know. We know well, what with you that, meant. Yeah. It's, all, it's fine. We're doing well. This is our third try, right? Are oh, we yeah. sticking with this one? Uh, Let's stick it, with this it, one. This is fine. So we're in Show Systematic Theology 2. Yes. Not Histematic. Yeah. Can Can I, I, how many Systematic Theologies are there? Normally three or four. Okay. Depending on how they break it down. Okay. You know this. I don't. You don't bet. you listen to this show? <laughs> Golly, <laughs> well, should be so, teaching this by now. I should, all right, guys, put your computers away. Okay. Let Papa Mark tell you how it's done. <laughs> Papa, <laughs> Papa Mark. Yeah, okay, I'm quitting. <laughs> Come I'm on, quit. kids, gather around. <laughs> so there are. Yeah. So the, uh, this is the second one, systematic theology too, and with that begins. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, doctrine of man or theological anthropology, if you want the fancy term. Um, now, this is this is a vital doctrine to get right. Yes. And all the more in our day, um, especially because we now live in a culture that's becoming increasingly fluid with how they want to define what it means to be human. And so, um, this topic really is the point where the biblical worldview clashes with culture. Um, the culture cares little about our opinions about things like the doctrine of the church, um, salvation. I mean, you're not going to hear talk in the secular world about Calvinism versus Arminianism. They don't care about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, um, because there's no implications to them, really. Um, but they really do care about, when we start this discussion, on what it means to be human, and therefore what our responsibilities are as humans. And so this gets into all kinds of questions, gender, sexuality, roles, self-identity, you know, ultimate purposes for your life, uh, beginning and end of life issues, and then a myriad of other things. And so getting this doctrine right for the Christian uh, matters. It has massive implications. Um, And so we would say it's critical for Christians to have a clear and firm understanding about what the Bible says about man. Um, you know, again, not only is that going to have implications for culture, but it's also going to have um, importance for not letting culture then influence Christians. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the big one. Um, you know, today, the amount of rationalizing that the church is doing um, in, in, around things that culture is saying is rather troubling. Um, you know, what's the conference that you... The Revoice. The Revoice one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was one opening up discussions about gay Christians. Uh, I think it was through, uh, PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church oh, sure, of America. Yeah. And the problem was that 
they're trying to say that these are people who are Christians, but they identify still as being gay. They're they're saying staying celibate, uh, but even that term of being celibate is a little vague as to what is meant. But the whole idea is that they're still identifying themselves as being gay rather than as mm-hmm. Christians. That's not what. Mm-hmm. defines them. And that gets into the whole issue of an anthropology. So this mm-hmm. is not some theor- theoretical work. It, Like you said, it's, it's critical. In fact, it's going to affect how you understand um, your relationship with God and with one another mm-hmm. um, in, in a big way. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll make this intriguing and interesting to everybody. Yeah. Second, I would say theological anthropology is it's not a doctrine that most think about within the church. No. Um, it it mostly tends to stay in the academy, at least in the Christian world. And the problem with that though, of course, is that the academy academy invariably trickles down into the church. Um, and so if in and they're having all kinds of conversations that are being influenced by culture and secular studies. And so if you don't have pastors or lay people that are firmly grounded in a biblical worldview of man, then it's it's going to lead to confusion and compromise. Um, well, and pastors just feel inadequate. Um, but this gets back into they're not being taught or they're not bothering to learn right. uh, how to deal with a lot of these issues. Um, so they they go to every, every other source of authority other than the Bible. Um, so they send them out to, quote-unquote, experts, right? Most right. of the churches that we know of in town, they don't do counseling uh, right. of any significant level. And, and, and again, what's behind that is uh, theological anthropology right. or lack of one. Um, but, but the more your understanding of what it means to be human is defined and controlled by the scriptures, then the better people are going to understand themselves truly. Right and also understand God truly. So we're gonna start at the very beginning with this and seek to just lay out a biblical theology of man. It's gonna take several episodes as do most of these. Um, and so today- Let's do most everything we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Golly. Yeah, so today today we're just gonna intro this. And then as we, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know we begin all of these topics with some fascinating lexical studies. <laughs> so you this is define your terms. Yeah, you yeah. want to buckle up though, yeah, because this is where it gets exciting. <laughs> so I, I'm going to read you just some quotes on anthropology. Um, this first one comes from Lewis and Demarest in their uh, work on integrative theology. Uh, they write, in trying to learn the nature of what it means to be human, it is vital to begin with Scripture, since Scripture tells the inspired story of how the triune God once created and now relates to human persons. To understand the right, the drama of, the, of Scripture, we need to understand the nature of persons as God created them. And then uh, Erickson, in his uh, work, Christian Theology, he says, extraordinary care must be taken to formulate correctly our understanding of man. The conclusions reached here will affect, if not determine, that's actually very important, will affect, if not determine, our conclusions in other area of uh, areas of doctrine. What man is understood to be will color our perception of what is needed to be done for him, how it was done, and what his ultimate destiny is. In other words, it gets into the gospel. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I was just, as I was reading, I was thinking of like guys like Leighton Flowers and, and yeah. the kind of silly things that he comes up in with his teachings on 
uh, where he's so busy trying to argue against Calvinism, but he, what he really shows is a complete lack of of biblical anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that it was funny that that was the picture I had in my mind as I was reading that quote. Well, Erickson goes on to say um, the doctrine of man is important because of the present crisis in man's self understanding. Not only is there a great interest in the question what is man, there is also great confusion regarding the answer for various recent events and developments cast out on many of the answers which have been given to the question. Now he wrote that about 20 years ago, and it's only gotten worse. Right right now, people would be freaking out, why are you even saying, what is man? Um, Using the male term is just offensive in so many parts. Yeah. So it's important to understand, in other words, in all this, that there's a critical difference between a biblical, meaning theological anthropology, and a sociological anthropology. So, let me read something out of the International Standard Biblical Biblical Encyclopedia. That's a mouthful. Um, He says, or they say, it is better then to recognize at the outset two contrasting possibilities when it comes to the study of anthropology. The first, that that in which man is simply set in relationship or relation to himself and his world, and that in which man is also and primarily set in relation to God. On the one side is scientific anthropology in the sense of empirical study of man and his world. On the other is theological or biblical anthropology in the sense of of, of a study of man in God's world. Those are two radically different yeah. starting points. Yeah, one's man-centered, one's... God-centered. Right, right. So this is actually a very critical point of decision-making for many believers when they start to think about the study of man. What is the actual base for their study? What what are the presuppositions that they're going to carry into the study? So as you listen to this, you should be asking yourself, where? what is my starting point? Yeah. Um, In other words, all, all anthropology is not the same. And that's critical to understand. Right. I mean, when you're talking anthropology, you're not just talking anthropology. There's all kinds of presuppositions and worldviews at play. So sociological anthropology is concerned with the interaction of man to man and is seldom considers the primary relationship of man to God. Um, and so as a result, um, certain fields of study have arisen that are indelibly imprinted with the presuppositions of, of that kind of anthropology. Um, so we would argue that you can't truly understand man if you don't truly understand God. Yeah, and this is why theology was known as the queen of the sciences, because until you have a, a, a proper theological standing on anything, um, you're, you're starting from the wrong place. If God really did make everything, uh, and he is God, the sole God, then we need to understand whatever we're talking about in relationship to God, and, and that's... Anthropology obviously is a huge one. Yeah. So your 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 presuppositions and your worldviews are going to determine how you approach the study of man and trying to figure out what man is. And so, for instance, you know, you you have evolution, which in anthropological terms, you're, it's the beginnings of man. That's right. what that is. You have psychology, trying to determine the soul of man. You have sociology, how man interacts with one another. You know, this gets into marriage, gender issues, war employment, parenting, religion, all those things. Um, so, you know, depending on where you begin is going to 
determine where you end on those. And so it's important to understand your presuppositions. Um, so there are, there are some alternative views of man. We know this. I mean, anyone who's gone to school knows this. <laughs> um, you know, th these are theories that truly, I would say, influence how people live, how they um, identify themselves, how they make decisions in life, how they understand their purpose, their meaning in the universe. Um, whether they know it or not, every single person is controlled by some kind of view. Right. Um, so these are just some. Um, so you want to give the first? Yeah, yeah, the first is that man is a machine. Um, so here it's just an emphasis on what man is able to do. In, an example of it would be like an employer is concerned with what a person can produce. It's very utilitarian uh, in, in its view of man. It can be seen in the church as well when people are valued according to what they can do or bring to the yeah. game. Yeah. Um, you, you don't see him as a soul. You don't see him as... Right. The image of God, he's just essentially a machine. Yeah, your meaning is a function of what you can produce. <laughs> right, right, right. Another one is then, um, another view would be man as a sexual being. Right. Um, this, of course, was developed by Sigmund Freud. He argued that the most basic drives of humanity are sexual in nature. Um, and so these drives are powerful. Uh, he would say they're amoral forces that define why and how man lives. And so if these forces are not properly handled, then the person becomes um, maladjusted. maladjusted. Yeah. Um, and, and if you just listen to how people talk uh, in TV shows, um, in, in your classroom, this is a common, common uh, mm -hmm. idea in some way that they're just living out their sexual sexuality and and. It's just natural, and then they build it into that evolutionary uh, mindset as well. Um, he's also, you, you'll see people who define him as an economic being, and what, what this means is it's dealing with uh, man being an offshoot of being an, an animal. Rather than mere biological drives defining and directing man, material forces, though, are what really define and direct. So it's food, shelter, housing, their basic needs, and once they're met, then the human has attained his destiny. So he's just trying to live those things out. Um, and this gets itself worked out in Marxism, which is a huge pop popular yeah. concept today. Yeah. Um, another one would be man as a pawn of the universe. Um, this one's funny. Um, man is man's basically at the mercy of the universe. Um, he has no true power, authority, control, or anything like that. These, the, they would say that these forces are often seen as impersonal in our society. Uh, earlier on, you know, there were religious overtones to this. Um, examples would be like the Greek and the Roman views of the pantheon, um, that all the gods are doing that which they wish. And so men are merely the victims of right. the wishes of the gods, those outside forces. Um, in modern and postmodern societies, um, what we live in now, um, these forces, of course, aren't attributed to gods, but are, are still, there are these impersonal forces that are seen as not having any real concern for humanity and are simply forces that man has no influence or control over. Right. Um, and then another way people will view man is that he's a free being. Um, this makes him almost a small god. Uh, he's self-determining. He's ca he is capable of creating and maintaining reality. If you want to see it on a popular level, uh, Oprah 
loves to sure. postulate that kind of stuff. Uh, the need for man is simply is simple information out of which he is then a fully capable of choosing the right and best way for himself. And so this belief argues that not only does man possess the ability to choose, but he's compelled to express that freedom to choose. So right. uh, again, these are just yeah. ideas. And you can see how that works out in the church with you know things like Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, um, that that man must be free in some sense. Right. Yeah. And so it filters into every other kind well, of theology. Well, also, it, in, in a subtle way, also how, how we, we're not to judge because everyone's just expressing their freedom. Now, they're not that blatant about it, but very reluctant to judge anyone because, you know, what's good for you might not be good for me. And yeah. right. again, still building off of that freedom to choose kind of idea. Right. Um, then man is a social being. Man is not designed to be alone, but rather he's defined by being a member of society. Um, th this idea of society is what actually defines him as being human then. This is why evolutionists often show so much interest in any animal that shows yeah. social behavior. They believe that they're observing in those animals what human behavior used to be. And so um, that's another view of man. So in light of... Uh these man-first or man-centered approaches, we would say that if a person starts with a biblical anthropology, then they will first establish a God-centered rather than man-centered, uh, a biblically founded base that, to then explain and understand man and his universe. Yeah. So, like everything, once you get that relationship to God figured out, um, as the Bible defines it, everything starts to fall into place. Yeah. So often Christians try to use or contemplate or debate or even flat out reject uh, sociological anthropology's explanations and systems of thought, but without first having a solid understanding of biblical anthropology. That yeah. That's just so common. Yeah. Um, before you start opening your mouth and getting into Facebook debates, you yeah. just develop a good biblical theology. Yeah. Um, or, or the Christian has an inadequate biblical anthropology and so that results then in embracing errant forms of sociological anthropology. Yeah. Um, you know, one other problem that arises when a Christian fails to make a connection between a biblical anthropology and a sociological anthropology, um, it, it, this, this results then in, in contradictions between the professed anthropology, that is what they believe to be true, and then a functional anthropology, how that belief informs their practice. Right. And so they understand something in theory, but it doesn't work itself out into reality. Yeah, and we see this all the time. Yeah. Um, so that's our introduction, basically. Yeah. Um, so now, as we said, we, we deal with the lexical aspects first. Just um, the Bible uses all kinds of terms with regard to man, and each one of them carries a, a certain connotation. And so we're going to walk you through them. Um, and and that way you can begin to understand the complexity of what's going on here. So the first one is the Old Testament terms. So we'll just deal with those. Um, Adam, um, here when we're dealing with that word, although the etymology of uh, Adam cannot be explained with certainty, it probably relates to the original ruddiness or redness of man's complexion. Um, I find that interesting. Why? It's just interesting to me because well, it's like the color of the dirt. Yeah, no, it's not that. You know why I, I always smile and, and kind of is 
I don't know. It's that that whole area where likely Eden came from yeah. or was. Um, it's known for its red soil. Yeah. So like I, clay. I, yeah, that this red clay like stuff. Yeah. But um, and so it's possibly possibly, but we don't know. Um, connected to the color of the soil from which um, man was made. But we see the word used in uh, Genesis two seven. Uh, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, uh, and it's using these these terms um, for Adam, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, in other words, the, man, the name Adam comes from this Hebrew word Adam, which simply means ground. Uh, as a result, then, Adam represents humanity as a whole. In him was all of mankind, and so because of that, what he did at the fall affects all of mankind. This will be discussed a lot more when we get into the doctrine yeah. of sin. Um, this term, though, also uh, is often used to focus upon the many. In other words, the all of mankind rather than the individual. So when you see the word Adam, it can be talking about the person Adam or the many, meaning humanity. And sometimes it's even hard to determine which is meant. And sometimes it can represent both of them. At, at the same time. So you have Adam equaling the first human. You have mankind, which is just a generic term for the entire human race, um, or also individual image bearers or individual men, but not Adam. Like you're a man. Yeah, yeah. I'm a man. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you have uh, Ben Adam, which is the son of man. It's used to uh, emphasize the fact that man is a creature and therefore he, he has limitations, and this will be developed in some other words. So um, that's one term. Um, and then the other, the other Hebrew words, so these are Old Testament terms, remember. So um, you have Adam, but then the second one would be Ish, is how it's pronounced. Um, and, and this word connotes primarily the concept of man as an individual um, and, and is therefore different um, from that more general idea um, of mankind, right? So, which you get in, you know, words like enosh, which we'll talk about as the next term. Um, but the the focus here with this term ish is is again is again it's not on the many, but it's on the individual. Um, and so it'll be used to speak of you know an individual male, or it can also be used to speak of a husband, um, usually in parallel with isha, which is the Woman. feminine form of right. ish. Right. So, Adam is emphasizing oftentimes the many. Ish is emphasizing the one. Right. Um, and then Enosh is another one. Uh, its basic meaning is uh, man in the sense of mankind. Uh, the verbal root is uncertain. Um, it may be a derivative of Anosh to be weak or sick. And if it is, then the basic emphasis would be on man's weakness or mortality, which is, if, if that's correct, and I think it is, um, it, there's a connotation going on that we see in some contexts, specifically those that emphasize man's insignificance. So you'll see it in, um, what is it, Psalm 8.4, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And here it's using that term, and the emphasis is he's so weak, he's so nothing, mm -hmm. and yet you... Look upon him. Yeah. You look upon him, yeah, and you show kindness to him. Uh, 
So that, that idea of weakness is the central sense of the word. And it reminds us of the fact that man is a very transient creature. His life is but a vapor. And before God, he's found to be in a low and very humble estate. So in short, it's the idea that man is mortal. So we've gone from just the generic word for man to the individual man to man being mortal. Fleeting, yeah. 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 Um, and then in kind of opposite of that word that you just talked about is then the Hebrew word gabor. Um, now, this this is an interesting word, I think. It, I love this one. Yeah. Um, it's the, the root gabor and its derivatives occur th- about 328 times in the Old Testament. Now, in Arabic, um, the basic meaning of the root is to rise or to raise or restore, something like that, but with the idea of being strong and prevailing over in some kind of power. Um, in Hebrew, it may share a similar meaning um, where the idea is not so much to make oneself prevail over God um, as much as it is to raise oneself up in arrogance and stand in his face. And you right. see this, for instance, in Job 15 and verse 25. Um, in, in Hebrew, it's commonly associated with warfare and has to do with the strength and the vitality of a successful warrior. Um, so, so when a man raises in his arrogance against God, the Bible speaks of him as being destroyed. We'll, we'll see that in Psalm 52, Jeremiah 9, 22. Um, rather the might of a man must be tempered with wisdom is what the Bible says. And, and the greatest wisdom of all therefore is to trust in God. Um, thus it is said that he is a Gabor, um, in other words, a male at the height of his power who trusts in God. Um, so the man possessed of might who yet distrusts his own powers and instead trusts in God is then a man most truly entitled to what we call the, the appellation or the title of man. Right. Um, that's right. manhood in its essence. Um, to see that again though, I mean, the one who trusts not in his own power, but in God is actually acting the most like a, a true man, man. man. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good saying. Yeah. Um, so, so on the one hand, the term can show the height of folly. Um, right. in fact, it's used, it's the same term in Genesis six for the men of renown. Yes. Um, Gabor. Um, so on the one hand, the term can show the height of folly when you're raising up in arrogance against God, cause you think you're strong. Or on the other hand, it shows the height of humanity in its truest sense. Um, in, in its most competent and capable level when it's a person who in whatever strength they know that God has given them, they humble themselves to trust in God's strength. Yeah, yeah. So there you see the glory of man right. where Enosh, you see the frailty of mm-hmm. humanity. So all the problem is in English, it gets translated man. Man, right. <laughs> all of these are just man. And so um, this is one of those things where if you could get yourself... Um, Oh, now I can't think of the word. I'm thinking of the book where you can, um, a concordance. And nowadays with electronic stuff, it's so easy where if you can do it and look at the Hebrew word, Mm -hmm. you can actually search out these terms in the Old Testament. And I think people would find it to be a very rewarding study because it starts to bring out some of those subtle things that just reading in the English, again, man, 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 man. And yet, actually, there's different uh, terms being used. And and the good question would be, why? Why did the writer use it here and not there? So... Mm -hmm. Anyhow, New Testament terms. 
You want me to do that? Okay. Uh, I don't know. All right. Sure, well, there's only ahead. two of them. So, um, Anthropos. There you go. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Anthropos. Well, I, I, I want like such a Midwestern. Anthropos. <laughs> Anthropos. With cheese curds. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anthropos is just, I mean, it's where you get anthropology from. I mean. Really? No, I'm sorry. I'm tired. And it was a bad was joke. terrible. Awful. Um, <laughs> I'll just shut up now. <laughs> go home. Go home. Um, yeah, so th- this is just the generic term that refers to human beings. Um, it, it, it's a term that is dis- that distinguishes uh, the creature of man, though, from animals and even from God himself. And you see that clearly in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, um, even a distinction from angels. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so built into this word is an emphasis upon the transitoriness and physical weakness. Um, it's basically the Greek version or the New <coughs> Testament version of that Hebrew mm. enosh. Right. Right, and then uh, aner or andros um, used to speak of man as an adult male. It's used to speak of uh, a man as a husband, um, and you, it's also used to speak of the human species, but that's um, like mankind, but yeah. very, very rare. Mm-hmm. So those are your two terms in the New Testament. So yeah. they, they, they're much like English, very basic. Yeah. Um, so implications of these terms. Um, there is a rising pressure um, within the church to push for a more gender neutral position regarding man or humanity, especially in Bible translations. Um, and you can go listen to our episode on Bible translations if you haven't. Um, but for instance, like in Genesis 5, 1 through 2, it gives the perception regarding the term man or uh, Adam um, that you can't quickly dismiss from our vocabulary. You, you can't just make man right. be something else to neutralize it. Um, so Genesis 5, 1 through 2 says this. It says, In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Right. So you've got this exchange of pronouns and right, things right, like right. that. But um, first of all, the passage shows that this was not a patriarchal culture that was influencing word choices for Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. Rather, these were the very words of God himself. He chose these words and he therefore has a purpose behind his choice of words. Um, he named male and female in Genesis 5 here. He named both of them man. And and there's a theological implication to that. And we're going to flesh right, right. all of that out, Lord willing, in these next episodes. Um, so we ought to be cautious before substituting a more general term in place of the one that God's established, especially when the word change is being driven by cultural pressures rather than biblical or theological ones. And that's why I really struggle with so many of these um, translations. They're just trying to get more and more neutral Mm -hmm. and inclusive. And it's like, you're missing the point. There's something more going on than just words. Mm -hmm. There's There's a theological point being made. And and we keep weakening it, and we can't do it. I noticed when I was reading, starting off this year, uh, reading in the Net Bible, is that they always, I don't want to say always, but most often say humankind. They do. It's a interpretation, but it's a right one. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll keep reading I, in the Net then. <laughs> yeah, I, noticed, I didn't. I noticed that too. I was I'm, like, "What does this mean?" I'm doing it in Net as well, um, but they're always they're. I haven't found where they haven't been correct that it it, sh- it is representative of all mankind. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So 
we want to give a sense of this. There's a strong indication built into God's word choice here. Um, and the whole point of it is that it indicates male headship within the created order. So it's it's one that's consistent with more overt statements in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 11.3 uh, or Ephesians 5.23. Uh, it's also consistent with functional restrictions and descriptions between men and women. Uh, in Genesis 2, it says things like, it's not good for man to be alone, yeah. so a suitable helper is made for the man. Um, or the issue of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 6, and the role of women being placed under the headship of men. Um, or in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, the whole role of men being teachers and exercising authority within the church. Or even in First Peter 3, mm-hmm. 1 through 6, where the requirement of men to lead their wives and wives to submit their, themselves to their husbands. You just talked about that in that wedding you performed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, these all lexical issues have theological issues when you're dealing with they mean something yeah, yeah. there's something driving it and and so when you're when you're picking your words um you need to pick them well and you need to be wise and you need to make certain that they conform to a solid biblical understanding yeah. and that was an iphone being dropped <laughs> so yeah that was our introduction um, we're trying to just lay down some of the necessary groundwork. It's it's a bit dry. We know that. We tried to make it interesting a little bit. I don't know how much. <laughs> I mean, how 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 exciting can Adam may be? But, yeah. yeah, but it's important. And um, I was reflecting on this as I was writing another script about how we've got almost seventy five episodes under our belt now, right? Sure, I think so, somewhere around there. And no idea. Well, and I'm thinking about we did all of systematic theology one. We've done things on, like on tongues and stuff. They're all starting to run and connect with each other. And more and more as I'm writing scripts, I'm realizing we we don't need to get into this. We did a whole podcast on that. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it's kind of fun because we're starting to get to a point where we can point people to if you want to know more about it, listen to our three podcasts yeah. on. Well, it's something. nice in, in doing this one, just put in parentheses. Go check out our Bible translation episode. <laughs> that, I, that's actually, you know. I, I had that thought, yeah, yeah. as well. And so, it, it is a little dry, I, we understand it, but there are huge implications. Um, and those will come out as we work our way through it. Yeah. So, until then, though, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know what you think about the doctrine of man, and don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. 